Welcome back to Sector One, the first stop you should make for your motorsport fix. I'm Sid, I'm joined with Lily, Devon, Maris, and today we're also joined with our historical and political expert, Freya. Today, we're going to be discussing the basics of Formula One. This is for you people who may not know much about Formula One or are really wanting to get into it. This is your opportunity to learn about the basics. So, Freya, do you want to tell us what Formula One actually is and explain to us a bit about the history of it? So, I'm a firm believer of to understand something in the present, you should always learn a bit more about it from its past so you can understand why and how it came to be. So Formula One, its roots are in uh, European racing in in between the world wars, so during the 1930s. And it was all about rich people running across Europe and racing against each other to find who is the best and who is the fastest. And they used to race for Grand Prix, which is what we still use today in France, in French. It means grand, uh, grand prize. And we still use it in Formula One today. But in 1939, uh, racing had to stop for obvious reasons, the start of the Second World War. But at the end of it, in 1946, the FIA reorganized all of its categories and the formulas were born. And the one that's going to interest us the most today is Formula A. But it wasn't very catchy, so they changed it. Formula One It's what we know today. And only five years after World War I ended, they had the first... What, uh, Formula One World Championship and the first GP on the 13th of May in 1950. It was at Silverstone and like it was huge. King George IV was there and so was Queen Elizabeth. And its first winner, who is coincidentally the first Formula One World Champion, was Giuseppe Farina. I love And he's also, a name you want, <laughs> he's also a name you want to know. And two other people from the 50s that you probably will hear lots about. Alberto Ascari, who was Ferrari's first Italian champion and the only Italian champion they have. And Juan Manuel Fangio, who Mercedes talk about a lot. And between these three drivers, they won the first eight Formula One championships. So it was kind of like today, but then. Uh, The 1960s brought with it the rise of Lotus and Jim Clark, who is a name you have to know if you want to. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. It also brought with it a reduction of engine sizes from 2.5 liters to 1.5. So it's kind of like what happened during the 2000s and the 90s. Also some names that you should probably know are Jack Brabham, who is the only person I believe to race under his own name in his own uh, team. And John Surtees, who's the only person to be a world champion on two wheels and four wheels, which is pretty big feat. Pretty impressive. And Sir Jackie Stewart, who throughout the 60s and 70s, he was a big campaigner for safety after an accident. Um, The 70s was a very, very dangerous period in Formula One. Lots of casualties. The cars kept getting faster, but the safety regulations just wasn't as fast in catching up. Uh, It was also the start of Williams, one of the most historical teams on the grid we have, along with Ferrari and McLaren. It was also the start of uh, the Nicky Lauda versus James Hunt rivalry, which Sid will talk about later on in the podcast. Yeah, and it was also in Rush, so maybe some of you have seen that. The 1980s saw Williams and McLaren battling it out for championships. 
eight out of those 10 championships in the 80s were won by Williams or McLaren. So pretty tight fight. It was also the introduction of turbos. So the turbo era, which you might hear about. Uh, it was also when a Brazilian racing driver named Etten Senna Have you ever heard popped him? up on the grid. Never. It's also quintly his, coincidentally his birthday, the day that we're filming this. So 61. Crazy. Meant to be. Yeah. And I think well, one of the girls are going to talk about him during the podcast. It was also the start of the Senna, Prost and Mansell rivalry, which was huge during the 80s and the 90s. This rivalry continued until Prost retired in 93. And a year later, in 1994, the whole motorsport community was very shocked and saddened by the passing of Etten Senna at Imola and also Ratzenberger. Uh, the 90s were also the start of the Schumacher era with his uh, championships at Benetton. And in 95, they introduced the uh, V10 engines, which a lot of people consider the best sounding F1 engines ever. Definitely. <laughs> the 2000s was definitely marked by one of the best partnerships in Formula One's history, Ferrari and Michael Schumacher. Five yeah. champion drivers championships for Michael Schumacher and six consecutive constructor titles for Ferrari, which, which it was a record that hadn't been beaten until last year when Mercedes got seven and maybe eight this year, who knows? I think we, um, I think we was, know what's gonna happen this year. <laughs> <laughs> mystery. Um, it was also a period after Ferrari where the resident young driver of the grid, Fernando Alonso, was back-to-back uh, -back world champion with Renault, who is also coming back with under the name of Alpine. 2006 was also the end of the V10 era, and that led to V8, which was definitely Red Bull's strong point. Four years they dominated with back-to-back -back constructors and drivers championships with Sebastian Vettel. And in 2014, the V6 turbo hybrid engines came about and started Mercedes dominance uh, with uh, Lewis Hamilton, Michael Schumacher, Valtteri Bottas and Nico Rosberg. And I think we're going to talk about Lewis later on in the podcast as well. So look forward to that. And you're up to date. New regs are coming in next year, big ones, which could completely change our perception of who's going to come first in the years to come so you've got that look to, to look forward to so that is the basic rundown of the history of formula one so we've been going for this is our 71st year of formula one and there are obviously some notable differences but there are also some very familiar names on the grid still we've still got we've got a new schumacher we've still got a hamilton we're getting Mr. Young driver Fernando Alonso back. We've got McLaren. We've still got Ferrari, Alfa Romeo. Names that you know in motorsport. You, you know these names. So, yeah. Thank you, Freya, for giving us that little rundown of the history of Formula One. Devon, would you like to talk to us about the teams and drivers in Formula One and how this works? Yeah. So, um, Freya kind of set us up nicely for that. It's interesting to see how history somewhat repeats itself um, through kind of different eras of dominance when I want to Mercedes dominance but um, yeah the basics so 
currently there's 10 teams on the grid each have two drivers they also have test and reserve drivers um obviously if there's any of their drivers um fall ill like we saw last year with covid they can bring someone in they can put someone in the seat for practice sessions to build up their experience um, and as we've discussed before they're generally part of um driver academies to help bring them up into f1 um, the drivers uh, are on contracts um, for each of the teams. Driver market is a big talking point within, within the sport. Um, generally, when a driver is brought into a new team, they'll have a shorter initial agreement, usually one or two years, to see whether their partnership is successful or not, if they want to retain them. Um, but yeah, so 10 teams. We have seen in the past a lot of variation in that number. I know off the top of my head, 2012, there was 24 drivers across 12 teams. Um, but through various different reasonings, a lot of time it's to do with money. Teams can't afford to stay within the sport or they can't afford to even get into the sport to start with. We do only have 10 at the moment. Um, from the research that I did, there's about 50 to 75 members of the team that travel to each of the races. This consists of obviously mechanics, uh, people on the pit wall looking at data strategy, um, and then team principals, CEOs, different teams tend to have different um, kind of power structures, if you want to call that within a team. Um, for example, McLaren has got Zach Brown as their CEO, but they have Andrea Seidel, who takes more of a team principal role. Um, we also see a lot of Past drivers come back in advisory roles. Um, Alan Prost is working with Alpine still. We see Jensen Button coming in with uh, Williams this year. And then the kind of total number of people within a team really depends on the team itself, um, how much money they have. Um, generally, the bigger teams, like Mercedes, Ferrari, McLaren, um, people including factory workers can be up to about a thousand people so they can be they're massive um it's a massive team sport and there's so many more people behind the scenes that you see than you see on track um so yeah and then the actual championships the drivers compete both individually and for their teams so there's a separate um drivers championship and a team championship um the drivers themselves don't win prize money from um the f1 revenue that's put together so i think 50 percent of the revenue of f1 is put towards the prize fund um, but that then funds the teams the team's championship um, what drivers get paid is down to the teams themselves um, so obviously if you finish higher up in the team championships you're then going to get more money more prize money at the end of it to use um, on development or anywhere you'd like to. Um, currently, there's three engine or power unit constructors in F1. There's one outside um, of F1 that supplies the teams. Um, so first one, Mercedes, obviously they've got the Mercedes team. Uh, they supply Williams, Aston Martin and McLaren is their new um, customer team this year. Um, Ferrari has the Ferrari team, Alfa Romeo and Haas. Uh, has particularly used a lot of the kind of off-the-shelf Ferrari parts, if you want to call it that as well. Um, Alpine, they have their own engine. They lost McLaren and Red Bull recently, so they're currently only powering their own team. And then Honda um, doesn't have a Formula One team, uh, but they are supplying Red Bull and Alfa 
for this season they are leading the sport in at the end of this season or yeah um and then red bull are gonna be taking on their own sort of engine development um so yeah in terms of the teams and constructors that's a basic rundown i'd say of of um of how it all works i think people forget how well or even maybe don't realize how much of a team sport racing actually is like yes it is we all we really see is the driver the driver is the man front man man or woman woman. front and center um you can tell the stereotypes just god um but yeah the driver is usually front and center the man i've done it again i've done it again the guy (laughs) get what you mean the the humor we always see f1 is like predominantly well it's all 20 men so yeah but yeah, there are so many people behind the scenes. Like, look at these factories full of people that research and develop the car. The people that are in the marketing department. It is a huge yeah. team, team, team sport. It's a team sport, hundred, hundred percent. And I think it's, it's all just um, the way that the money is given out, and the fact that at the end of the day, F one is a business and. You know, I learned about the the revenue when I was researching about this, that it's 50% of everything they earn goes towards the prize fund, but driver's salaries are not included in that at all. So the teams can kind of choose their own incentives and their own rewards uh, or bonuses to give to the drivers on on how well they perform, um, their kind of standings in the uh, driver's championship doesn't always dictate what their what like the money that they get so you could get people finishing lower down in the championship that at the end of the season actually get paid more just because of the team that they're with or sponsorships or things like that yeah sponsors are a big one like i know there's a cap coming on the costs of the like the wage but the sponsors sponsoring the driver doesn't count as that it's like we'll take Lewis Hamilton let's say you know he gets sponsored I don't know how much he sponsors with Tommy Hilfiger but let's just like say it's like 10 million and he gets paid that that's not in his wage so Mercedes can get away with like you know he can get away with earning more with the cost cap coming in which is like quite a smart one. Drivers do come in and ask for different things like for example you know I think it's Daniel in his contract. I think for Renault, he got to keep his trophy. I think I think that's how it worked. But the trophies he got last season, I'm pretty sure he got to keep them. But some drivers will not have that. They, if they want that trophy, they will have to have a replica made because it's not in their contract. Some drivers have, if they finish P3, they get this much of a bonus. If they're on the podium, they get this much of a bonus. But that is that is not a given. That is something yeah. you have to negotiate. Yeah. What are you going to say? Um, it's quite interesting if you see that certain teams will have a bigger budget than others. So Ferrari have a massive budget, but as we saw last year, they were really far down in the constructors' championship. So it's not, although the sports a lot to do with money, some teams don't put their money into the right places, and it can yeah. go completely wrong. So you can look at it from both ways, but obviously, the more money and investment you have the better chance you have to do well, which is why I think smaller teams really struggle to even stay in the sport. Yeah. And then also you think about the revenue that's made from um, the 
power units and customer teams and manufacturer teams you've obviously got if you're providing a power unit or a gearbox for another team they're obviously going to be paying you a lot of money to use that so you're going to get you know that's going to be a, a set revenue that maybe other teams that don't have that don't produce their own uh, power units they're obviously not going to get any revenue from from any customer teams or anything yeah. so I think we can definitely do a whole podcast on the financials of Formula One because it is a, a mammoth topic to That would to be a really interesting one because that's actually that's what I want to do in motorsport finance. So like I'd really like, yeah, I think Merit yeah, is very similar with me, like finance and accounting. Yeah. So, you know. Shall we go into the format of race weekends then? This is, this yeah. is my one. So um, Formula One is a big logis- logistics thing. So... I don't I can't tell you too much details about you know when when they ship off and everything because they're going to each corner of the earth more or less and so the logistics thing is a huge mammoth challenge where they have to get the car from Bahrain to America like it's it's hard it's hard but the Formula One weekend officially begins on Thursday which we refer to as media day on a Thursday the drivers will go to the track and go and perform all of their media duties this involves doing an official press conference it, this involves doing interviews for different channels and this also involves you know sitting down talking with the team on you know the steps they'll be taking this weekend are they going to be running this strategy what what's the rake on the car going to be like you know have we got a new front wing we're bringing in are we bringing in anything different this is the chance for you know the team to all kind of get settled into their week Then we go into Friday and this is where we get to see the cars on track for the first time on the weekend. We have FP1, free practice one, FP2, free practice two. These are now both, I want to say they're 60 minute sessions now, but these are long sessions. They used to be a bit longer, but they've been shortened down to 60 minutes for this season. And basically this is almost similar to testing where we get to see what the Formula One cars are like, but this is just to get a feel for these new circuits they're on. Um, just to get an idea of the feel for the track, what setups they should be running and what strategy they'll be using when it comes to the race day. Then we go on to Saturday. We have free practice three, which is our final practice session. And this is usually lots of short quali runs or long runs ready for the race. This is when you really crack down on that race preparation. And then in the afternoon, we go on to my favorite part of the weekend, which is qualifying. This is split into three sections, Q1, Q2, Q3. Q1, we have all 20 cars on track and they're all setting the fastest lap in this 18 minute time zone. They have to set fastest laps. They'll change tires, keep trying to set the fastest lap. It's very tense, it's tense. The bottom five will be taken out of this. They they will qualify from P22, P15 and that will be their position and they're taken out of the session and we move on to Q2 which is a 15 minute session and once again these 15 cars go out on track and try and set the fastest time then the bottom five of them they get taken out for Q3 we move on to Q3 and we have the top 10 our fastest runners setting down and this is where we find out who is going to be on that pole position and you know this this gets really tense because this is a lot shorter of a session this is a 12 minute session where we've got 10 cars on track all competing for those top spots and this then sets the grid for sunday when it comes down to race day race day it depends what type of fan you are personally for me 
I like to sit down and watch it from the first build-up part. I watch like from 11 o'clock when the race is at 2 p.m. And that's just like three, four hours of build-up for the race telling me everything which I've already watched over the weekend. And we just get to know a bit more about the track, about the drivers, what we're going to be running. We get to see all the interviews. The drivers then do a driver's parade. We haven't actually been seeing this because of coronavirus, but usually all the drivers would get into a car or on this big truck platform and drive around the track whilst being interviewed. It was kind of a chance for them to wave at all the fans, but now we just get little interviews. We then go and do our little lap to get to our position on track. And then it's time for the formation lap. This is where they're basically zigzagging across the track, warming up their tires, getting ready for the race. And then Crofty or whatever you're watching it on, because it's lights out and away we go. And the race has begun. Anything to add on the race format, guys? That's I my favourite bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting if you're not a really hardcore Formula One fan to understand that they don't just go there and race. Mm-hmm. Things like media commitments, you wouldn't even think that they have to do that. Even things such, such as part. practice, where you think, oh, their job is racing driver. They go, they race, they go home. They have all this extra stuff like practice where they have to, you know, make the car better, spot the mistakes. And it, there's so much more to being a racing driver than just that. And like, even though practice isn't as interesting for fans sometimes, it's really important for like, the whole race weekend and it gives the teams lots of data although sometimes we wish they didn't have that much so it would make yeah. the race more exciting um but yeah I think it's really great to see the whole weekend as a new fan and see what the drivers have to go through in preparation yeah we know we have drivers like Max Verstappen who says he doesn't need free practice he just needs one or two laps and he's yeah he needs two laps he's ready for yeah. in the race but some drivers do need that and even if the driver doesn't feel they need it the team needs the data so the race that they'll have is it's 300 kilometers minimum apart from street circuits like monaco obviously that's shorter but it's some people's favorite favorite track of the year i i don't understand it personally but you know each to their own yeah i'd like to go there yeah historical but you know yeah yeah i think it'd be the worst one to go to to watch Mm -hmm. the actual race you can't see anything and it's just a bunch of people pretending yeah like formula (laughs) yeah it's just the kardashians walking around not really knowing what's going on yeah let's be honest but the races will last for up to i think it's two hours i think they changed it to two hours recently more recently anyway and yeah. so this is just to account for things like red flags or safety car where the racing isn't going to be as fast as we're expecting it to be or we're missing out on laps for things like red flags. And so the two hours is just so that we're not putting these drivers under immense pressure for such a long time. And it's partly for the broadcaster's benefit as well. Maris, would you like to tell us all about Formula One's point system? Yes, of course. So obviously with these races we need to find a way to rank all the drivers obviously they finish first second third um but it's hard to just say the person who wins the most races will win the track the championship because they may have finished second or third more times than another driver so they've obviously we've had their point system since 1950 it's changed quite a lot over the years it was 10 points for a win for a lot of the time And then in 2010, they changed the point system to the current one that I'm about to read out. 
So if you finish first, you get 25 points. Second is 18. Third is 15. Fourth is 12. Fifth is 10. Sixth is eight. Seventh is six. Eighth is four. Ninth is two. And 10th is one lonely point. Um, so that was 2010 to 18. Um, and recently they reintroduced the fastest lap point. Um, so it's the driver who, essentially it's a bit of a quality lap that they do to try and get an extra point. Um, so the driver who has the fastest lap of the race will gain an extra point. It was last used in 1959. So they got rid of it for ages and didn't use it. Um, but you have to be in the top 10 to receive it. So the smaller teams who would want that extra point who are sort of at the end of the grid wouldn't be able to receive it but it's sort of a cheeky way for teams to gain a point off their rivals and things like that so if you've got a massive gap of say 30 seconds to someone behind you they might pit the driver to get new tires just specifically for that point um but basically it's it's the easiest way to rank the drivers so that at the end of the season they'll have the person with the most amount of points will win. Um, it's quite hard to compare over decades. Um, people like to, to like um, compare, oh, this driver has this many points, but because it's changed so much and gone from 10 points to a win to 25, you can't compare rec like records or anything like that because it's quite difficult. But currently, um, Ferrari have the most points, as we've spoken about, because They've been in the spot all the way since it started in 1950. So that's about it for the point system. I think something also important to highlight is in the Constructors' Championship, finishing in the top three, P1, P2, P3, is such like such a jump from finishing P4. Like P4 and P3, you want to be P3 because you get millions more in prize money. It's not just yeah. like, it's not just like a few a few thousand it is millions between those two positions and so that is why the fight for formula one it isn't just for that top spot it is for all the positions because because of the jump in money every team wants more money for development and so that is why it's such a tight competition all the way up until the end like last season i think it was the last race we were we were finding out whether it be McLaren or Racing Point taking that P3 position in the Constructors' Championship because it's such an important factor. Yeah. And also, you might not think that one fastest lap point is going to make a difference, but actually, when it comes down to it, especially the last couple of years, the midfield battle has been so tight that it does come down to those points. Mm -hmm. And there has been occasions where, you know, teams might have been a few points short of taking that third position or that fourth position in the constructors but the accumulation of fastest lap points over a season you could be getting an extra say 20 odd points if you consistently I mean it's highly unlikely but for one driver to get all of the fastest laps for all the um across every race weekend then it's it does make such a difference and I think when it's as tight as it is things like that I love that they reintroduced that point because it does just I don't know it, it excites it up a bit it does add a little bit of like a fun aspect because you think oh Max is pitting he's gonna try and go like try and get that yeah. one yeah. 
point because you know he can't necessarily get in front of Bottas and Hamilton but he's gonna try for that one little point that could it adds a bit of excitement at the end of the race as well Mm -hmm. yeah like you said it's like a quality lap at the end it's like oh it also shows how passionate the drivers are that yes I've just explained that one point is does mean a lot but in that one race it is just one point for a driver but they're so determined to get that one point and I think part of that is because they know what's at stake within the championship but also to say that you've come out with the fastest lap it's kind of you show to the rest of the grid like yeah no I went faster than all of you so shut up about it (laughs) sometimes it's a bit of a dangerous thing I think that's why they hadn't reintroduced it until um, 2019 because you don't really want the championship to be decided on one singular fastest lap that could come down to luck whether you have that gap to pit or not for it so let's take 2007 championship decider for that if let's say the fastest lap could have been available that year Hamilton or Alonso if they had got it they would have beaten Kimi but is that necessarily representative of whether they should have won the championship or not? We don't know. You don't really want it to go down to the wire and think, oh, who's better? And they win it by one point. You don't want to say it's like something they've just thrown in. It's like a gimmick because it's not, and it shows the pace, but it's races are to do with the overall race pace, who has the best race car. And any of the cars can just turn their engine up, get that extra point. So it's really difficult to know whether it's going to impact the championship or not it may be because i want red bull to win the constructors championship but yeah shall we shall we introduce a point for fastest pit stop yeah i think we should they would get all of them i think i I know we had a question about what what regulation would we want to bring in that is what i want that one yeah, I think we should put that forward to Formula One. Like, let's just like give Chase Carey, Chase Carey. Yeah, I think that's who it is. Yeah. A phone call and be like, "Come on, let's have it." Michael oh, Massey, oh. Michael Massey, yeah. come on, pal, race director, come on, let's have a then fastest lap, fastest lap, fastest pit stop point. Yeah, yeah. Then you're like rewarding yeah. the pit crew as well. They have another incentive. To, exactly. It's obviously, they sport. want to help. Yeah, they want to sort of end up contributing to their, you know, whole sort of championship result and it's really nice for them to be able to do that as well and think that they're them working hard obviously it's going to help them get further up if they do a quicker pit stop but it's quite rewarding to know that you're better than all the other teams at pit stops definitely red bull red bull definitely know that they're better in pit stops they're like look at us with like mm. you know sub two second pit stops it is it's like the norm for them now we see yeah, them over two yeah. seconds and we're like, oh, that's a bad pit stop. Honestly, when I see, I saw Max, like it was like 2.2 seconds. I thought, now that, Poor. you failed with that one. Come on. <laughs> it's crazy to think of like how quick these pit stops are. Like it's, it, I mean, it blows my mind every time. But I was thinking if there was to be a point for the fastest pit stop, do you reckon they would give it just to the team as opposed to the driver because the driver is not really yeah. in control yeah. of the pit stop but yes I they need be to the make most sure that they're hit on their marks and that they've stopped in the right place but yeah obviously all of the points that a driver wins in a race goes towards their team championship because at the end of the day they're driving for that team but something like that you would maybe think they just put to just to the team the I think team. I think it would be a cool one just because it would would get Red Bull like what 23 more points in the season yeah 
<laughs> so, and Williams. Yeah. Williams are quite good at the old pit yeah. stuff, aren't they? They're yeah. pretty good. You know, oh, Ferrari would have no chance. I was going to oh. say Ferrari. Just Poor Ferrari. Mercedes at, Mercedes at Germany 2019 now. Oh, they would have got minus points for that you one. Know, <laughs> we, we're taking off 20 points for your 50-second pit stop. <laughs> Don't you think, though, like, as, a, as an avid F1 watcher, pit stops feel, like, so long. Like, when people tell me, oh, yeah, it's only, it's only 30 seconds, I'm like, 30 seconds? Are you having a no. laugh? Yeah. Like, it is you, mad it only took me two minutes i'm like well do you know how fast we go around this track because like it, two minutes i, I is just think long it, yeah i think sub two second is mad like it takes me more than that to get a sock on like come on yeah and they're getting like four tires on a car and i can't even get like one sock on crazy as soon um, as you become an f1 fan you're like how you perceive time completely changes like yeah. be like oh second place one second off and someone will go that's not that much. I'm like, that is so much <laughs> yeah. time. Oh. So on, on the conversation of basic regulations that we were chatting about, how we would personally bring in pit stop points, Lily, would yeah. you like to discuss the very basic race regulations? Yeah. I'm just, just basically going to cover, you know, the safety cars, the flags, and just that we get real changes every so often. So we have a virtual safety car, which actually wasn't introduced until Jules Bianchi's Jules Bianchi fatal crash. Um, basically what it does is it slows down the pace on track without the need of a safety car. Also, I am looking down at my notes because I can't memorise all this. Yeah, it makes the lap time 30% slower than the standard racing lap. So the FIA sort of give like a standard race and that may have to be 30% slower. In order to like maintain the gap, it forces a 30% speed reduction. This is determined by the marshalling sectors. So we know that there's three sectors, but in on an actual track, there is so many more than that. So 20 marshalling posts divide up the sectors and you get your times measured in these sectors every 50 metres. And then the driver gets informed, you know, if you need to make a change because, you know, you're too fast. It's because it's you can get like points. Those, those cameras, like on normal roads, you know, and you're on the M4, and you have to have yeah. a certain speed between these two cameras. It's it's like yeah. that. Yeah, it's that's literally the best way that you could have done it. Um, so because you can get I penalties. Guess, I guess they're using it with well, the difference between you're probably going to cover this, but they don't want to completely slow down the race with a full yeah. safety car, but it just yeah. makes sure that whatever's happened gets cleared away quickly and safely without disrupting the race too much yeah it's just it's just for crashes because obviously the Jules Bianchi crash could have been pre- prevented with something like this or a safety car um you just have to make sure you slower slow in the virtual safety car and at least at least once in every sector then we have a safety car which is for bigger crashes usually you know if a marshal needs to come and get something off track if you need the the big truck out that's the best like the fork the big, to lift truck. Up. the big truck that's the easiest way to tell you all these big truck terms. and they all have to follow the safety car this year we have the most beautiful safety car you will yeah. ever see we have the aston martin and the mercedes which is in red which is i don't know why they've done Different. that but they have i'm not gonna yeah, i'm not gonna question it no it's beautiful and with a safety car unlap lapped cars can unlap themselves but you can't overtake you know you can't do um dan tick to inform with a four just can't do that just just a little one you just got to you know follow it and you can't do a Sebastian Vettel and turn into the driver because they're going too slow 
you just got to stay behind it. Penalties, you know, there's a lot of penalties you can get in Formula One. You can get a five second penalty, which is nothing. No, it's it's nothing really. You can serve it at your pit stop. If you don't need to pit, you'll just get five seconds at the end of the race. That's just usually for little things. You know, if you've done something that hasn't endangered someone's life, a drive-through penalty, you just have to drive through the pit lane. But that affects your race massively because the pit lane, yeah, the pit lane speed is so much slower and you'll lose if you lose Hamilton you're probably not going to lose any places because you're probably 40 seconds ahead but any other driver will lose a fair few places there's a 10 second stop go penalty which requires the driver to enter the pit lane stop in the pit like in the pit box for 10 seconds and then like get the tires changed or whatever and then has to go um they're usually imposed for like very serious things you know if you've jump started sped in the pit lane ignored the blue flags just gone into the pits whilst it was closed lewis hamilton i'm talking about yeah. <laughs> not even gonna complain because that gave us a great win so we have more name dropping in this one <laughs> we're just sort of calling any driver out that's done something wrong um you know if you've done something really bad you know you can get a grid penalty which mm-hmm. You don't want a grid penalty and grid penalties are also enforced when you've exceeded the amount of like engines you can use that season and you've changed things that you shouldn't really change it can give you an unfair advantage so you get usually a three or five place depending on what you've changed um you know that's all i've got to say on the penalties um yeah five second ten second time penalty at the end of a race as well that's one that was added actually in 2020 the 10 seconds at the end of a race flags again i would say we'll put pictures up but the flags are very self-explanatory you've got a red flag that means you know completely stopped we ha- well we hadn't seen one of them in a long time and then about five came along at once last season yeah. i mean that's like, that was yeah so I was like, but we haven't seen red flags in ages and all of a sudden we're getting one almost every bloody race and then we got then we got some magello and it was like six in one race and i'm like hmm, what okay yeah it's crazy um and it can also be with like bad weather conditions. You know, we've seen that in Formula Two and Formula Three when it's been like severe rain. They've just red flagged the race. Blue flag is when you're being lapped. So when Hamilton's lapping the Williams, usually. You Sebastian know. Vettel is a big fan of the blue flag. Yeah, <laughs> got a whole song for that. Yeah, yeah. You know, go and, go and check it out. <laughs> um, also, I didn't know blue flags are also shown the exit of the pit lane to warn the driver of a faster car on the pit on like the pit exit where they are mm-hmm. so i didn't know that green flags just you know guess once, what green means <laughs> yeah what does green, so you can just go you know right after a yellow flag they'll wave a green flag so you know it's okay to go the black flag is also given you don't want a black flag it's not a good one you basically disqualified from the race if you get the black flag oops yeah you, your number gets shown with it and you're disqualified. I don't think we've seen a black flag. Very rare. Very I think rare. the last time was 2007 from what I was looking at with Felipe Massa. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. You know, if I'm wrong, it's very uncommon. Yeah. Check a flag just means, you know, session's over, race is over. We're done. You win. End of the race. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just where did that black with an orange circle, which this one is literally never shown. It's if you've got a mechanical issue, you see these more in the lower series is just when they've got, you know, a front wing hanging off. Yeah. You get the black and orange flag. And that means 
you know come in on you'll get a penalty and then there's a black and orange flag which is like half and half mm-hmm. which is a cool one which is unsportsmanlike conduct so you know we might be seeing this this year with a certain driver sorry who yeah. <laughs> um, i don't know and then we've got the yellow flag which is just yellow and red flag which is something's on the track that you can slip on and then there is a yellow flag which is if there's been an incident, you have to slow down in that sector, which if you don't slow down, you'll get a penalty like Lewis Hamilton in Austria. He loves to pick up the penalties. Yeah, he got especially for flags. For that, didn't he? Yeah, he got quite a bad one. That was like, and it was 30 minutes before the race as well when Christine Horn just came crazy. out of nowhere and was like, ha. They covered then, that in um, Drive to Survive, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. That I loved, my one of my, this is completely like unrelated, but one of my favourite things about Drive to Survive is just the way that it's edited and like the way they order clips and stuff. It's amazing because you just see like Christian Horner just like sat there and he's like taking the mick out of uh, Mercedes and he's like, do you know what? I'm going to initiate this. And suddenly Lewis Hamilton has a grid penalty. Yeah. Literally as they're about to start the race. And he's that got a match. It's great. It's funny. Yeah, and then there's the technical regulations, which is way too much to get into in one video, like one podcast. They get changed. It's usually like every 10 years, it's like a big change. So the big change is coming next year, which is going to be all new cars. Every year there's like little changes, you know, the the odd small one, but nothing that affects the cars too much. And then obviously when there's the big changes, that changes everything. So yeah, that's just the basics of anything to do with regs. I think the flags that you really need to remember are yellow, red, blue, checkered. Anyone, anything I missed? Green, maybe. But green isn't like they're the most common ones. You'll see. Yeah, the most common. I think as as controversial as blue flags have been in the past, I think. Well, the whole purpose of flags in general is to ensure that like everything's safe on the track and that the drivers are kept aware of anything that might be on the track but obviously blue flags you know indicating oh there's somebody coming from behind you that you know you're being lapped anyways um first of all it's just a bit disheartening for for the drivers i can imagine keep seeing loads of blue flags um but yeah they just ensure safety and yeah as as much as drivers complain about them i think they are kind of needed they should do what they do on the F1 game and instead of a blue flag, they just make the car in front of you invisible and you get to drive straight through it. <laughs> they should bring that technology. It'd be a lot easier. <laughs> I think it's a um, idea. In terms of like penalties, the drivers can get, they get given penalty points if it's a really severe penalty. So I know they, like Lewis and George Russell, I think, Got have nice six penalty points being carried on over into this season. And if you have yeah. too many, I can't remember how many 12, it is, around 12. 12. Yeah, it's just like a normal so, license, really. Like yeah, a, it's just so like they, a normal one. They yeah. give you a race ban if you've got too many penalty points. Within a certain time period, it gets cleared after a certain time. Yeah, it's within 12 months, and then, like, Max yeah. surprisingly has zero. Like, it's gone must have been tour, wiped recently. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's gone from, like, crash, crash happened to, like, zero penalty points. Mm. Like, that's Who mad. is this man? Yeah, he's a, yeah. He's a new one. Yeah, people haven't, it's very uncommon for people to get taken out or, or like have a race ban um, because sure of too many, te- too many penalty points. I think Grosjean's got quite close. Sebastian yeah, Hamilton was think quite close actually in 2019, no? Hamilton was close last year. He had 11. Yeah, there were people yeah. getting very close at some points. Yeah, and I think in F2 we have had a race ban. 
Oh, probably. I think it was, I, I can't actually pronounce his name, but we all know who I mean. Like, iconic F2 driver. Oh. I can't, yeah, I think, um, all, I just can't. Maher, his... is that his name? Yes. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had a race run, I'm pretty sure, because he, like, crashed into Jack Aiken. He crashed into the wall. He crashed into someone else. He reversed his car nearly into Marshall. Like, he's done a lot. Jesus. He did a lot. Also, they're then obviously wiped before when you get up into Formula One, which I know is something that's maybe going to be mentioned this year with Nikita Mazepin because he's yeah. kind of known as being quite a, at, at sometimes dangerous driver. He seemed to rack up quite a few points in yeah. Formula Two, but um, did get quite I, can't a remember, few. I can't remember who it was that posted it, but they'd recently posted an updated version of everybody's. Um, Penalty points. It's another was on... motorsport podcast, no, yeah. n- naming no names. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. Okay. I think I know who you're on about. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yes, it's interesting. It just gets wiped, which kind of, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, but I guess they can't monitor it all the way through and it's yeah. not the same machinery and it all gets I think, a bit technical. Like, obviously, going from like F3 to F2, it doesn't really need wiping because you, you're still in like the lower categories, but like yeah. F2 to F1, you're taking like the big step into you like to think they're maturing for that step up don't yeah, you yeah like i think the all all the rookies this year i think hopefully will yeah up their hopefully. game up their game yeah yeah so as we were mentioning when we were just when we had our history and political expert on there are some drivers who we refer to as goats not not like the animal but greatest of all time i'm not comparing any of these drivers to animals no <laughs> Goats are my favourite, I cannot lie to you. Oh, I do love goats. Um, yeah, love a good goat. Mm. I love a pet yeah. one. Should we get a sector one ambassador goat? <laughs> yeah, I think that oh, would mascot. work. Yeah, a little yeah. mascot. Our mascot should be like the rich energy drinks, let's be honest. <laughs> Content <laughs> about rich energy coming soon. <laughs> just, just dropping a hint there. Dropping a little hint, Lily. Oh, just like I getting the hints you. in. I see you. Get everyone excited for it. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about in our, our favourite goats. And so we all picked one driver and we're going to tell you a little bit about their career and we're going to go in chronological order. So I'm going to start with the great Nicky Lauda. So Nicky Lauda actually paid for all of his seats that he got. So Formula 3, Formula 2, it was called different things then, GP2, GP3. And he also paid for his Formula 1 seat by borrowing money from Austrian banks. He he was an Austrian driver, obviously. he, he talked his way into getting better drives. He he never had the performance there to begin with because he was with teams that were just poor. He paid for seats that weren't the best because that's all he could afford. But he could talk his way into anything. The man had talent in that sense, not just on track, but off the track too. His self-confidence, yeah. his honesty, he had a very no-nonsense work ethic. And so it made him stand out. He was very much so admired for that because he would jump in a car and be like, this is wrong. This needs fixing. Do this, do that. And he knew exactly what he wanted and he could get the mechanics and engineers to do exactly what needed to be done to make the improvements to the car. And that is one of the reasons why he was so admired. The feedback he would give was just amazing. And he was actually nicknamed the computer because he took such a clinical approach to motorsport to driving to his racing he he he, although being a really good driver and wanting all the trophies the podiums he he wasn't really a fan of getting all of that attention and he actually traded some of his trophies to get free car washes 
at his local. That was the kind of man Nicky Lauda was. Like, your That's trophies cool. for free car washes. Like, what? Could never I blame be- him, though. Oh. If the car wash was expensive, like, good on him. Like, if it was a good car wash. Yeah, yeah. I hope it was, like, a full inside everything, you know. Yeah, not sloppy work. In. No. That especially shows his, like, passion for it over mm-hmm. the want to just have a trophy or for the money. He would yeah. literally wouldn't care if he got a trophy or not. He just want to race. He was yeah. he was a pure racer in my opinion. So at Nurburgring in 1976, his car went up in flames from issues issues with the car. Um, yeah. he was actually dragged out of the car by four fellow drivers, and I just think that is absolutely incredible that four drivers jumped out of their cars and ran to Nikki's aid. Uh, an amazing marshal also ran to Nikki's aid to drag him out of that car. Surprisingly, he was still with us, but he suffered from third degree burns, scorched lungs from all of the smoke he'd inhaled. He had a few broken bones, but he actually made his comeback just six weeks later. Six weeks after suffering all of these horrific injuries, he came back. He was wrapped around in bandages. He lost half of his ear. He had bandages all over his face and he put that helmet on and he raced. He jumped straight back in that car. When he took imagine the pain. After, when he took it off, his the blood was seeping through. It was, it was bad. He he shouldn't have really got back in that car from a doctor's perspective. But it just shows how much he cares for racing, despite his severe injuries and the fact it was literally bandaged up from head to toe. He jumped back in that car. Lauda and Hunt had a very famous and intense battle. If you want to know more about that, you can go and watch Rush, which is a film with Chris Hemsworth, one of my favourite actors. And it is an amazing film if you want to learn about a little bit about that rivalry that they had. And yeah, you'll understand it from that. Um, Yeah, it was really good. Nicky actually won three world championships. And as he grew older, he became a huge part of the Mercedes Formula One team. He's actually responsible for... Lewis Hamilton being at Mercedes. So we have Nikki to thank for that. Back in, was it 2016? That, no, it wasn't 2016. 13? When did he pass Four. away? 2018? Oh, he passed away. Yeah, it was and 18. So I remember it was the day of my GCSE. So it was 19. And I was like, do you think I can get the day off? <laughs> like, do you think I can use that like, as a death? Because I was like really sad about it. Really sad about I didn't it. it. I, didn't, I didn't get to miss my maths exam. Oh, I've read it here. He passed in 2019, leaving a huge hole in the motorsport world where our great Nikki used to be. So yeah. Nikki, Nikki definitely has left a huge hole. And you know what? The way he utilised what happened to him always made me laugh. He, he would always wear a red hat. And this was a sponsored hat. And he made the sponsor pay a ridiculous amount of money for this hat because people people were a bit uncomfortable about seeing his burns and his scars, hence why he would wear the hat. And so he charged a lot for that sponsor position. And I just think that's so Nicky. So Nicky. clever as well. Yeah. yeah. Clever. Yeah. That is Mr. Nicky Louder for you guys. Moving on, oh. we're going to go over to Devon, who's going to tell us about the birthday boy. Mr. Ayrton yeah. Senna. So, fun fact before I start, uh, my dog is actually named after Ayrton Senna. His name is Senna. Why didn't uh, we know this? <laughs> how, yeah, I was going to say, how did we not found this out? You kept yeah. this quiet. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's his name. So he's a 
a firm favorite in the family, the dog and the driver. Um, so he was a Brazilian driver born in 1960. As they said earlier, today is uh, his birthday, 21st of March. Um, he is one of the most iconic drivers uh, ever to be in the sport. Uh, he won three world championships uh, in 1988, 1990 and 1991. Um, he joined McLaren in 1988 when he won his first world championship um, alongside Alain Prost, uh, which is one of the most intense rivalries uh, that has kind of been, been around. Um, and as we said, McLaren and Williams in that kind of era were, were really dominant. So after... Um, after his McLaren days, uh, he moved to Williams in 1994 because uh, they thought that they were dominating and that would be a, an obvious career choice uh, for him. Uh, he's kind of, he's well known for his wet weather performance and his quality speed. It tends to be um, his kind of standout um, quality, so to say. Uh, and he held the most records for pole positions uh, until 2006 which was then broken by Schumacher which has now since been broken by um, Sir Lewis Hamilton. Uh, he was won more races for McLaren than any other driver and anyone that drives for McLaren or works in McLaren he's just an icon and a hero for them. Um, he also still holds the record uh, for winning six races in Monaco I was kind of the, the king of Monaco, so to say. Um, and to summarise his, um, his records, he's the fifth most successful driver in um, history. He's with 41 wins. Um, so then, yeah, he moved to Williams in, in 1994. And then he sadly died in a high-speed crash at Imola, as we mentioned. Um, it was just a really awful weekend actually uh, Barrichello had a very nasty accident he couldn't race that weekend and then Roland Ratzenberger was also killed in in quali and Senna was a big advocate for safety and just a, a kind of nice guy so when they found or when they um, investigated his car afterwards he had actually um, stuffed an Austrian flag into his car that he planned to to honour Ratzenberger with um, after the race. So to have lost both of them um, was, it was just an awful weekend for the whole of the whole of motorsport and something that anybody that was there, obviously none of us were there, but anyone, all the commentators, broadcasters, just fans that were there, it was just, it was just a horrible weekend. Um, and he had, tried to re-establish the, um, the Drivers Association for the kind of the Drivers Union to improve safety so that things like this didn't happen. Um, it, had, it was already a thing but it kind of died away um, but it was then re-established um, after Senna's death and it still sounds today um, just making sure that safety is kept as the number one priority. Um, in kind of his honour and everybody since then. Um, but yeah, after, after his death, Brazil declared a three-day mourning period, um, their government, and he's kind of still stands as one of Brazil's heroes. He's just loved by, by everyone. So he's, you know, still missed. And the post that we've seen today on his birthday, I think, to show that 
he's going to be one of those that has gone down in history books and will continue to because he was just a first and foremost an amazing racer um but b he cared a lot for the safety aspect and the people around him so yeah that's that's Ayrton Senna in somewhat of a brief summary I think a really important thing about Senna and his death actually is the fact that you know, from what happened the day before, I'm pretty sure he was one of the first people to go and check that Rubens Barrichello was okay. And Senna didn't want to race. He didn't want to race on that day. Yeah. Because of how horrific that weekend had been, how dangerous the track clearly was. But he he was a true racer and he, and he jumped in that car and never made it, never made it back out. And I just think that's heart-wrenching. Like, oh. yeah horrible yeah, and it, yeah to have had those two accidents already in the weekend and then to lose him as well I think that was a big turning point for for safety in Formula One as a whole and obviously Sid Watkins did the, a lot yeah, yeah exactly the medical um medic but yeah it's just an awful weekend but oh, we have seen an improvement yeah Sid Watkins and Ayrton Senna had had a conversation before that race and Sid Watkins had said oh, why don't we just go, I think it was either, why don't we go fishing or go play golf or something like that? Like, come on, you don't need to do it. You don't need to put yourself at that risk after they just lost Roland Ratzenberger. And Senna was like, no, I have to, like, I have to kind of thing. And just, oh, if he'd just have said yes, it'd be so much different. But would he have wanted to have gone any other way? I don't think so. No. Yeah. Senna Senna will always be a legend in Formula One, in motorsport, but also Brazil. He did so much for the poor people over there in Brazil, the people struggling. He did everything he could to help. And I know his his foundation or whatever it's called are still doing yeah. a lot to this day, yeah. which, which is amazing to see. Definitely. Yeah. It's sad to think how much more could he have could he have achieved, especially thinking the following years Damon won the world championship, who was his teammate in that Williams. Mm-hmm. And with how good Senna was he most likely would have got more world championships and we could look at him as holding the record. So he had so much more to give as a driver. Yeah, I think he would have really, I don't think Schumacher's dominance would have been quite as much as it was if Senna wouldn't have passed because I think Senna would have really, really, really challenged. Not saying no one did challenge Schumacher, but it was, it's a bit like Hamilton at the moment. He was untouchable. Yeah. But I think Senna would have, yeah. Senna tried. He would have tried. Yeah, yeah. Lily, next up, yeah. Michael Schumacher. Are you? Yeah. About him. Yeah. So, personally, I think he was. He's just. He's the greatest of all time. The goat. You know. Goat. He had. He was the first person to get seven world championships. You know, obviously Lewis has done that since, and Lewis has beat his wins and his poles, but. He was the first person to set them records. And I think that will always, obviously that will always be in the history books. He had 91 wins, 155 podium finishes and 68 poles. So, you know, he was pretty good. So he started karting at the age of four, which actually shocks me. He's 52, born in 1969. The same as my mum. That's the only reason I know that. Um, yeah, he's German and also, him and his brother raced against each other, and they were the first brothers to ever be on the podium together, if I remember correctly. Oh, you know, wow. will, we see, will we see the Leclerc's doing the same? Mm-hmm. We never know. Yeah, um, he 
started in F1 in 1991 with Jordan and he actually qualified seventh that weekend and that's when people sort of like turned and like you know this this man could be good and then in 1990 I've, I've missed a big part of it 1994 to 1995 he got his first two championships with Benetton so you know that's not very long after he got into F1 really in 1999 he actually broke his leg in a crash at Silverstone um and then you know came back the next year to win five championships in a row with Ferrari 2000s 2004 again it was just the dominance of him was just it was something else that as obviously the Mercedes dominance now is very very similar but watching the old races from back then it was just makes you feel a different type of way he retired in 2006 I feel that's when he realized he, he couldn't really couldn't really do any more but then he actually made a return in 2010 with Mercedes which we don't like to speak about that much because it was shocking you wouldn't but, think that it, that was the same team when you look at them no, now it's it crazy. was you know I'm pretty sure his last race he was like crashed into and it just it wasn't the Schumacher we know and love and it wasn't the Mercedes we know and love now. And then he retired in 2012 for the second time, which was actually one of the last times we ever saw him like publicly because in 2013, he had a severe skiing accident with his son. He was there, which is quite sad. Mick was there at the time and he was put into a medically induced coma. And from then on, we haven't been told told much about him there is a documentary coming out which is sort of like all access that's been done by his wife apparently but we don't really know much about him you know Jean Todd's come out and said that he sits and looks at the mountains and cries which breaks my heart there was a story about him like hearing his kids voices as well and it just and like you could see some sort of reaction in him and it just it's heartbreaking it really is you can't imagine what it's like for like Mick he was 14 when it happened and now he's in F1 like you expect I don't want to sound like sexist but you expect your dad to be there so when you were raised that your dad usually got you into it and old drivers would expect their dad to be there especially as he's like one of the greatest drivers of all time like it's it's Michael Schumacher (laughs) everyone's going to be talking about him aren't they he's like it's going to upset him Yeah, it's heartbreaking. You know, we don't actually know much about him now. You know, we can hope that he's okay. He's got the Michael Schumacher. It's not like the Michael Schumacher Foundation, but he's got his own. Yeah. I can't remember the exact name. And uh, Mick's actually, he wears that on his overalls and he has it on his car. Oh, keep fighting. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Yeah. And it's got like its own Twitter account. And it obviously doesn't give you updates in his life because his family are like very, very private. But, you know, we can just just hope that he's okay considering he raced in F1 in like the 90s when it was dangerous mm-hmm. and it was a skiing accident it's just and he was wearing a helmet yeah and he went into a rock apparently that's yeah. you know it's just heartbreaking so yeah I think so, my, my dad told me this I'm not too sure how much truth is in it he told me that apparently Michael used to say that when he when he was done with Formula One he would kind of almost like drop off the face of the earth like you kind of wouldn't hear from him again he'd want to have that privacy so I I like I personally like to think you know he, he's all right he's better he's yeah he's not the Michael he used to be but he's still Michael and he just wants yeah. to live live his life now without being in the spotlight I that's yeah. what I like to think I know it's probably far-fetched yeah. but 
Because obviously Ralph, he's very in the spotlight. His brother's like very in the spotlight with David, whereas Mick's just sort of like a lone wolf, doesn't really have anyone with him. It's his mum sometimes comes like his mum watches his first, he watched his first ever Ferrari like outing that broke my heart with her on the pit wall. Mm-hmm. And, but, um, yeah. and Michael's old like manager kind of person is still yeah. with Mick now. So I love that. Yeah. But yeah, that's. My, there isn't much you can say about Michael Schumacher that isn't good. Like he had a temper. We can. He, he reminds me of Max in the way that he'll fight anyone after a race. Yeah. If something's not gone his way, he'll go. He'll go to them. But yeah, he's just. He's got a special place in any motorsport fan's heart. Yeah, fan's heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The most um, impressive thing, I think, is how well he built Ferrari around himself. Like that yeah. team was so incredibly dominant because he led them in the right direction and he won those championships for them if it was any other driver I doubt they would have been able to do it because he really helped and it was like such a family which is the thing is even drivers now like Vettel says that Schumacher is his inspiration and he loves him and that's like one of the reasons he got into it and I think that's so amazing to have people who have inspired you so much that you that's the career path that you've taken one of my favorite things about this whole like idol thing with Vettel being uh, Vettel idolizing Michael Schumacher is the fact that Mick then grew up idolizing Seb and so it's like this little full circle thing going on and I just think that's adorable I love it yeah. and to see Mick and Vettel like together and you just it just it warms your heart doesn't it it's like yeah this is meant to be you know it was it w- would have been wrong not to not to see them all as a kind of happy family so mm-hmm. yeah so on to our most recent driver, who is still driving today. We go to Maris to tell us about Lewis Hamilton and why he is a goat. Yes. Yeah, so why he he's a obviously goat. <laughs> well, he's if the British goat. Out of context, yeah. So he is the most <laughs> successful British driver. Um, I think he's probably one of the most successful rookies ever to come in. Because his first season, 2007, he lost by one point. And that, <laughs> and that obviously was, he made a mistake Sorry. in China when he went into the pits. We're having a goat moment. It's just because <laughs> I've had like a German Lily. goat. And Lily's laughing and then it's making me laugh. I've had like a German goat, a Brazilian goat, an Austrian goat. It's a different breed of goat. <laughs> It's not even that funny, but it's just the thought of them actually being goat celebration. I want to edit them as goats now. I want to put their faces <laughs> bodies. That that's gonna be our right. thumbnail. I'm making that for our thumbnail. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, Mary. We're really sorry, Mary, for our laughing fit. Carry on with Sir Lewis. It's okay. Um, yeah. So his first rookie season, he only lost by one point, which I think the only other driver to sort of be that high up was. Jacques Villeneuve when he came in like mid 90s and he won it obviously on his second attempt in 2008 and I don't think a lot of drivers have got into the sport and been with a top team so obviously you can say that it was because he was put straight into McLaren but I think a lot of people remember his going to um was it what Ross Braun was it Ross Braun no I can't remember um he went up Ross to the head of McLaren. Oh, we went up yeah. to um, 
What's his face? What's his name? Ron Dennis. Ron Dennis. Yeah. That's it. So, I, was just, I was just naming Ferrari, not Ferrari McLaren. Yeah, Ron so Dennis, he went up go. to um, Ron Dennis in the Autosport Awards um, around his karting days and said, I will drive for you for McLaren because his inspiration, funnily enough, was Ayrton Senna um, as to why he got into it. And obviously Senna drove for McLaren. So he said, I'm going to win the championship in your car. And he made an impression immediately. You know, he was paired with Alonso. He finished P3 in his first ever race. Crazy. I... I I've watched loads of his races, you know, as a fine girl. Um, and his first ever race, he went straight round the outside of Alonso, first turn. And the first impression everyone got was, this guy's got balls. And especially on Alonso as well, when he is the reigning Formula One champion who beat Michael Schumacher the previous years. So that set him up so well. And he stayed with McLaren until 2012. They had up and down years, their relationship sort of, you know, got a bit worse end of 2012. And he made the decision to move to Mercedes. And a lot of people question that because they weren't the best team. And he got one win. Yeah. Um, Yeah, because he obviously persuaded him to move to the team. Um, So 2013, Hamilton did get a win at Hungary. And he's the only driver in history to have won in every single year that he's competed. I think that's, that's quite a hard thing to... Yeah. yeah, it's quite a hard thing to do now because the rookies will come in and they have to go to a smaller team. It's very unlikely that they get shoved straight to the top. Obviously, they try to do that with... Unless Albon. you're with Red Bull, yeah. <laughs> you just get you just get thrown up straight away. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yuki Tsunoda's yeah. going to be sat in that Red Bull at the end of the year. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Do you know what? I'm going to say this and we're going to edit a clip and it'll be Yuki Tsunoda sat in that Red Bull. Yeah. <laughs> Predicting the future. Um yeah. So, obviously, people doubted his move because Mercedes weren't at the top of their game. And as soon as they had that rule change, obviously something Mercedes had said to Hamilton where they were like, we're going to make this progress. And he said, I can make that work. And he's, I don't want to say done a Schumacher, but he then built that team around himself Yeah. from 2014. And the problem is, I, I think of it as people haven't risen to his level in terms of why he hasn't had competitors because he never had anybody like Senna had Prost and they were fighting so hard. And the reason Hamilton, I think if Max was here maybe from 2014 onwards and had an amazing cult, we would have had those battles and maybe people would see Lewis's championships as more, he deserves them more in a way. But because apart from Nico Rosberg, who had to work so hard to beat him in 2016, He's just thrashed everyone. And yeah. he's obviously, he's become the king of quali. You know, his amazing laps. That Singapore lap in 2018 is literally the best thing I have ever seen around a racetrack. It's, it was impeccable considering their car was not built for that track. And the previous years, Ferrari had slaughtered them. So he is going to be remembered. People, it's very hard because it's, it's impressive that he does all this other stuff like music and he's created this foundation, which is amazing. Um, and like they might say, oh, that distracts him from his racing. But for him to do that, as well as doing Formula One and still beat everyone, you've got to think, what else can the drivers do to beat yeah. this guy who literally has so much stuff going on and he'll turn up, win, leave, go off, make a music track yeah. or whatever. His music is good, though. <laughs> his song is 
not what you expect Lewis Hamilton but to the do. Lyrics, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, like, would you expect Lewis Hamilton, Sir Lewis Hamilton, to say? Mm. Wasn't it? I'm, yeah. I'm about to give you domination. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he was talking about the F1 one. Domination on track. Yeah. 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 Let's go with that. There we go. Was, yeah. Makes mm. sense. And now. obviously, yeah. I'm just translate so it if you want. Flip. <laughs> it is. He's the only other seven-time world champion apart from Schumacher. And they, in terms of their career, it's quite similar how they got the team. And like, it's kind of what Max is doing, which is where I can see him doing yeah. so amazingly is because he's built the team around him, which is obviously what you need. Um, so, yeah, that's Still pretty much done. everything about. Yeah. 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 And obviously becoming a sir this year. The other, only so other, excited. Yeah. The British driver who's done that is Sir Jackie Stewart. A lot for his safety regulations and things he he's iconic. Very very cool. I think the fact yeah. you're getting another Sir and he's yeah. in our universe motorsport. Mm. Um, but yeah, that is the basics of Formula One. So that was this podcast. We've talked about all the basics. You know the goats of um you know the goats of it so we've had you know the brazilian no <laughs> we've had the goats um so make sure you go and follow us on at sex one podcast we actually started doing twitch streams which is amazing we are streamers now guys so make sure to go and follow us on that and also follow us on twitter because not to our own harm but i think our twitter is quite funny just just putting it out there like (laughs) I think I think you'll all find it very funny obviously our Instagram gives you updates and everything we're up to and our TikTok we know the TikTok is going to be we're up in the game on TikTok don't worry so yeah thank you for watching guys tuning in I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you again next week with our first race rundown so yeah thank you